Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by Green Branch Publishing. Hey, Tothy, this is a special month. Hmm. 50 years ago to, was? Uh, I have heard about this. That's right. July 20th is the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11's lunar landing. What an amazing accomplishment that was. I can't even imagine, right? Being one of those astronauts, just the thought, even decades later, just makes me anxious. Oh, totally. I, you know, now everybody's talking about going to Mars and Elon Musk is trying to calibrate all that and other people too. And I just think about the tremendous courage of anybody let alone back then, you know, that it took to do something like that and go to the moon. It was an exciting time for our country. And honestly, I, I wouldn't do it. Not in this lifetime, maybe the next one, but don't sign me up for the, for the Mars, (laughs) the Mars. Me too. Me too. I'm out. But I I agree (laughs) with you a hundred percent. It was uh, definitely an exciting time for our country. And we're about to have another exciting time right now. Uh, Let me guess word of the show. Is that the excitement oh, building? Okay, very, very good. I wasn't thinking quite along those lines, but yes, Word of the Show is always exciting. <laughs> but I was thinking of our guest, David Wolf. Oh, right. You're interviewing uh, David Wolf. He's a, a real live astronaut. And because this is a healthcare podcast, he's also a physician. That's true. And David is, I'm proud to say, a fellow Hoosier. And he's a friend of mine. More importantly, though, his research in both space and, and, and on Earth has opened up door to a whole new world of, of medical possibilities, and we'll, we'll get into that in the interview. Oh, cool. No, I can't wait to listen to the interview because I've heard you talk about him in the past, and he sounds fascinating. And so um, that's next up, but first, we need to do the word of the show. We actually do need a word of the show, Mike. So true. Okay. In honor of our, our astronauts and all those people that supported their, their missions, our word of the day is resolute, hmm. admirably purposeful, determined, unwavering. Wow. That's your definition for resolute. Well, there you go. That's a perfect word uh, for today's episode. And the NASA and, of course, the Apollo 11 astronauts were certainly purposeful, determined, and unwavering, and thus resolute. Here, here. All right. On that note, let's just move right on into the interview with Dr. David Wolf. It is my pleasure to welcome David Wolf to Sound Practice Podcast. Uh, David is an American astronaut, medical doctor, electrical engineer. Uh, David's been to space four times. Three of this, uh, these were on space flights on space shuttle missions. And the fourth was a long duration mission above the, uh, I'm sorry, aboard the Russian space station Mir. David's been doing groundbreaking uh, research in uh, cellular therapies and cellular medicine uh, for decades. He's considered by many to be the father of regenerative medicine. And I am very proud to welcome a true American hero to the podcast. Dr. Wolf, thanks for joining us. It's an honor to be here, Mike. Well, thank, thanks, for your, thanks for your time. I'm sure you're getting a lot of this as we, as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the, the moonwalk. 
And <clears throat> I'm thinking back about some of the, the, all of the challenges, I guess, faced by, by early astronauts. And some of those were, were some health consequences. Is, is that correct? Well, for, certainly it is. In fact, early space flight, it was a concern whether humans could live at all in zero gravity. And as we've extended space flight durations up into the near, uh, essentially a year even, uh, in my case, five months, we've progressively found more and more issues come up, uh, most recently issues with the eye that are being researched heavily, where the globe of the eye is compressed front to back over time in, oh, maybe half of astronauts to the point it affects their vision and retina. But bone, muscle are key areas that space flight affects uh, profound losses. And of course, we intend to explore the solar system back to the moon and Mars. And those are very long duration missions, which we do feel we're ready to go after at this point. Well, and I think only ready because of the vast amount of research and um, in preparation that's gone in for all these years. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the medical testing and monitoring uh, that you underwent or participated in while you were on space shuttle missions. Sure. The most obvious is the bone and muscle loss. And it's something about 1% bone mineral per month, unless you do uh, high countermeasures, and that's even with modest exercise, which is the primary countermeasure. And we've come to realize that it takes uh, about two hours of heavy exercise a day up in space to uh, prevent much of the bone and, and muscle loss. But even that misses many of the groups of muscles because it's so hard to reproduce gravity by any uh, exercise mechanism. Well, that's a lot of valuable time on, on a mission, isn't it? Spend exactly. So that's expensive time, which should be spent doing research, such, such as uh, the tissue engineering work that we'll talk about, I'm sure. Excellent. So did, did you have specific monitors on you when you were on uh, space missions, either on the, uh, the launch or, or reentry? Uh, we did launch with two of our, my first mission was a dedicated research, medical research mission, a space lab mission in 1993. At its time, it was a record length space shuttle mission with a space lab laboratory in the payload bay, a pressurized, a la very sophisticated laboratory where we very carefully looked at blood formation, uh, muscle loss, bone loss. We used radio tracers to do that. We looked at vestibular effects, the balance effects, which are profoundly uh, changed in space. And two of our members of our crew, I was the doctor that handled them, so uh, launched with right ventricular catheters in place. And we got very surprising results about concerning the 
chamber pressures and heart size that actually changed our idea of cardiovascular physiology in space, which also degrades rapidly. They were actually cath during the whole time in, in space? During, no, just during ascent, uh, when we wow. went into zero gravity, and then we removed those soon after achieving orbit. That is amazing. Um, so right. I'm sure and lots of good research very, came from that, right? Yeah, we found that we expected, since we get chamber enlargement, we know from ultrasound, which I, in fact, built the first ultrasound machine, which is how I got to NASA initially, that flew on the, in space on the space shuttle. And it showed very significant, about 15% enlargement of the end diastolic volumes, the heart at its relaxed state. And we believe this is due to mobilization of fluid from the lower extremities without mm. the effects of gravity, uh, recompartmentalization of the blood volume. And we expected along with that to see higher pressures but actually, uh, immediately upon achieving zero gravity, the pressures dropped uh, to near zero. So the heart, in a sense, is sucking blood in instead of the blood pushing its way in under higher pressure, which was a very unexpected finding uh, immediately upon achieving orbit. Wow. Now, let's talk a little bit, because you were on the the Russian space station mirror for a number of months, were you not? Yes, 128 days, in fact, and uh, had to become a cosmonaut that was done all in Russian language and uh, went through cosmonaut training and then flew uh, on the Russian space station mirror where we did a, even more research, but you may recall this was immediately following uh, severe problems, a fire and a collision in the preceding months. So exercise was not our priority. It was repair of the space station. And uh, this led to an interesting situation where I did not do exercise for several months due to uh, the busy workload which uh, in a sense unfortunately led to results of what happens if you don't do that kind of exercise and I had a very profound bone and muscle loss uh, something approaching 40 percent of my lean body mass being muscle uh, was lost and many of the load-bearing bones lost 15% of the bone mineral. We do pre and post-flight uh, DEXA scans of the bone, very accurate scans to look at mineral content. How long did it take you to so, recover? It took about two years, and I did recover uh, with hard exercise. Maybe you could compare and contrast for us uh, the differences in uh, medical training and monitoring between the, the Russian and, and U.S. Mis missions? Well, the Russians are very careful with medical monitoring. In some cases, even more scrutiny than the American programs. They 
concentrated on long duration space flight space stations before we did before the Americans and the 16 other countries in the International Space Station, which also includes Russia at this point. And uh, they are they were very careful about it and blood testing, strength testing. And uh, they did not have sophisticated exercise equipment at, like we do now. But the knowledge wasn't there. It was that those missions that was in 1997 and eight and missions like that, that led to us understanding the countermeasures to the profound uh, debilitating effects of space flight. What about circadian rhythms in, in space? It seems to me that that would be awfully difficult sleep schedules and so forth. That's a good question. Since we orbit the Earth 16 times every Earth day, we have 16 sunrises, 16 sunsets every day. You definitely need to cover all the windows um, at night. And we operate very close to a circadian, Earth circadian rhythm and reproduce that. However, the operations such as spacewalk, to avoid radiation exposure, the South Atlantic anomaly. We need to do major time shifts during the mission, uh, such as 12-hour time shifts frequently. And so we've learned how to conduct those in an effective way that allows the uh, high performance to be retained. And it, it, radiation exposure is a, is a major concern. Uh, even on relatively short missions. Wouldn't you agree? It, it is, and, and it's even a concern on Earth, of course. And we are flying. We're careful to fly below the uh, radiation belts, the Van Allen belts of the Earth. Up around Those are up around four to 500 miles, they begin. And those the magnetic fields that generate those belts are protective, kind of an umbrella. It funnels the radiation particles into the poles. In fact, that's what forms the northern and southern lights that we watch and we see spectacularly from space. But when we go to the moon for long durations, which is our next target, and then on to Mars, which is the follow-on target, we humans will be spending even more time out, uh, large amounts of time outside that umbrella, outside the magnetic fields of the Earth, the protective magnetic fields. And this is one of the highest concerns for long duration exploration class missions. I'm sure you don't remember this, but at one, one time we were, we were talking and you made a comment that, that part of your training uh, for one mission or another was to be able to extract a tooth. And it, that just kind of drove home to me. You're really on your own, aren't you? When you're there, I mean, you've got to take care of any really situation are. that comes up. And I was wondering if there, there are other kinds of things along that line that maybe the average person like me would, would never even consider that goes into to training a, a medical officer for one of these missions. 
Well, the medical officer, we do like to fly a physician or medically trained person. If we can't, we provide a lot of training. But such as eye injuries, you can imagine in zero gravity that any particle that is generated floats around and easily can get in your eye. And oh, yeah. I mean, you have a corneal abrasion, you're, you're out, of, uh, out of doing work for a while, I would imagine. Yeah, you don't want to have that in space, of course. And one morning, I remember waking up, you don't want to move quickly because there was a pair of scissors floating right in front of my face, <laughs> just slowly turning. So you learn to look very carefully and watch and uh, preventative countermeasures, uh, not to get yourself injured up there because you are on your own. And you can imagine that surgery is not very practical because what keeps our air largely clean is that the dirt falls to the ground. And in space, that does not happen. We're dependent on filters and airflow, which is not perfect. So surgery is not practical at this point, any kind of major surgery. We do train everybody to give stitches. And uh, we do have consult with doctors on the earth. In fact, I was the, for several years, the chief engineer for the telemedicine system that is now operational on the space station before I was an astronaut. So you're known for having spent I believe more time than anyone else doing spacewalks. Is that, is that right? Oh, no, that's, that's not true anymore. At least, um, there are some real outstanders. I'm pretty high up in the group though, with seven spacewalks, uh, one in the Russian suit and from the Russian space station, and then six split up into two missions for building the international space station which I led the team, the spacewalk team, that conducted the spacewalks for space station assembly. On the, the International Space Station, are there a good number of, what's the health or, or, or medical infrastructure um, on that facility? The International Space Station has a health maintenance facility, which is a telemedicine system. Uh, it has a good range of medications, antibiotics and such, and you know, medical suturing, the things you'd expect. But it's not um, monitoring cardiovascular monitoring, cardiac monitoring, so that we can determine if a crew member really needs to come home, which would be a major disruption, as you can imagine, and and uh, can't be done quickly. That's not happened to my knowledge. Well, that's a, definitely a good thing. Um, it's a fairly sophisticated system, uh, of medical monitoring and treatments that are reasonably practical in space. Kind of like a, a quick care clinic, you might say capability that you might expect on earth, not a full hospital. Let's shift gears to your work in, in cellular biology and, and regenerative medicine. 
Can you tell me how you began working in that, that area? Sure. Uh, I had spent, oh, six or so years uh, with the ultrasound for cardiac investigation and uh, developing the telemedicine system uh, for the space station and leading a large team, a large, very talented team. And I had my eye on a project that seemed very interesting for growing human cells in space, initially targeted at drug production, pharmaceutical production. And I asked to be assigned to that and was, and it led to a, as usual, unexpected results where we found that zero gravity and even simulate, and then we learned how to simulate those conditions, allowed human tissue, human cells, to grow as three-dimensional organ-like systems. And we switched gears and made that the primary work, which is uh, still now used and used uh, as a research tool all over the world. Fascinating. And roughly when, when was this, time-wise? The first results were in 1985 and 6, where we discovered that cells would ha aggregate three-dimensionally under the gr low-gravity conditions. And we in then invented how to do that on Earth in a rotating culture system, fluid-filled system that looks eerily like the womb and grows tissue eerily like the womb. It's been used now on almost every tissue system in the body from musculoskeletal to the retina even. And it was particularly satisfying that the instrumentation, which is fairly complex for doing tissue culture, even on Earth, but in space where it has to be very well contained, um, I got to be a part or lead the team that developed these systems on Earth and then fly them in space. Also, several years later, where we got uh, even more spectacular results. But this is an area that is ripe for further development. Uh, it's akin to the stem cell area. Uh, I'd rather call it regenerative cellular therapy because it, it, it's not just dependent on the stem cell. It's the stem cell being organized with substrate and multiple cell types being organized together where we get a, the proper niche it would be called for generating tissue, uh, not just the lone stem cell. So looking to the future, where do you see these therapies taking us? Most people, most uh, doctors and the forecasts are that cellular therapies will be very important in the future. They're already becoming important. Uh, in fact, uh, it's been many years we've done bone marrow grafting. It's been very successful, of course, but it hasn't gotten much farther than that. Uh, the CAR-T therapies are 
treating cancers, activating T cells to attack cancers in a specific way. But it will go much further than that, treating musculoscellular, musculo, uh, skeletal problems such as knees and uh, lack of arthritis, lack of collagen and such, and wound treatment, likely burn treatments, and on and on. Neurological disease is a key target. These therapies have anecdotally been powerful, but they need to be done with proper FDA auspices and approvals in which uh, these should be an important part, a key part of the future of medicine. Absolutely agreed. So as we're, we're looking forward, we've looked back 50 years to the moon landing and, and walking as we, we look forward 50 years. Um, I think we're talking about a mission to, to Mars. Can you talk about some of the uh, medical difficulties that presents? Well, the Mars missions will be a class that will be in the multi-year class. And these will aggravate all the physiological systems, which are all really essentially every system is affected at different time constants or rates. And the radiation is one that particularly uh, uh, troubles me because it's just hard to guard the human against that. In fact, the very cellular therapies that we've uh, invented by looking at space and going to space and then developed how to reproduce on Earth may be a key part of, of hardening the human body to radiation, just as it may treat radiation-induced damage uh, in the Earth-based setting. Fascinating. And, and again, on the, the ocular problems, because I, I don't think I fully understood that. This is interocular pressure issues? Well, that's not clear because it's hard to, to uh, measure that. We do measure that in space, but it's different than just the pressure. We believe it has something to do with the electrolyte balance and uh, intracranial pressures. We see papilledema and choroid folds, uh, and we see the whole globe of the eye flattened forward to back. So it, it's beyond just intraocular pressure. So uh, this is an area of intense study. It, we believe it can cause permanent retinal damage. Uh, and so that's high on the list also with radiation. We believe we can tolerate the bone and muscle count due to the countermeasures that have been developed over the years well, even though they're Im not perfect, they'll be good. We believe those will be good enough not to cause permanent damage and allow to allow high performance on the other planetary bodies, Moon, Mars. We've been speaking to Dr. David Wolf, a physician, an astronaut, cosmonaut, and father of regenerative medicine. Thank you very much for your time, and thank you for joining a Sound Practice Podcast. It's an honor. Thank you. Well, 
Mike. David Wolf, I have to say, is one of the most interesting people I've listened to in a very long time. I mean, to travel to space four times and he's trained both as an astronaut and a cosmonaut. I mean, that is just hard to fathom. Right? I mean, look, as though it wasn't difficult enough to be an astronaut, he had to decide to do it in, in Russian. I know. Uh, just uh, uh, unbelievable. It's like the, the Fred Astaire joke, right? I mean, no matter how, how wonderful of a dancer, then you had Ginger Rogers doing it all backwards in, in heels, just in, in infinitely more, more difficult. Yep. I think that's got to be the story with um, moving from an astronaut to cosmonaut and doing everything in, in Russian. But Absolutely. Look, I, I was totally fascinated by David's discussion of the biological effects of zero gravity on the human, human body. Oh, right. I mean, I was stunned by that. That part about um, catheterizing astronauts to measure their cardiac changes in, in space. I mean, crazy. You couldn't make that up. I mean, can you imagine raising the idea at a conference table on a Monday morning? Like, hey, guys, wouldn't it be cool if we catheterized the astronauts during a set? Wouldn't that just get you? You would think that just get you tossed out on your ear from the conference table. But... Well, apparently not, because it, it, it happened, and uh, David's work like that and in the field of regenerative medicine was really remarkable. Just amazing. Yeah, a- absolutely. Look, look, D- David's a true American hero. Well, Tothi, I think that that really wraps up today's episode. I hope that uh, everyone has enjoyed our interview with, with David, David Wolf. If you did please consider rating us on our website, soundpracticepodcast.com, or on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Yes, we would really like that. And uh, we do need more reviews. So please, please do that. And if you'd like to give us feedback directly, like, oh, send us a joke, send us a word of the show. My goodness, we're always scrambling to find words of the show, Mike. So let's do a, let's do a shout out. It's like, hey, Send us a word of the show, people. We'd love that. And you can send that to feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com. Oh, that's a a quality idea. I hope hope we get some some good words submitted. But remember, please join us next time on Sound Practice. We drop a new episode every other Wednesday. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Bada-bing, bada-boom. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions about future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at Green Branch Publishing. For the best in practice management, journals, books, newsletters, and on-demand programming for physicians and practice executives, visit greenbranch.com.